Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from Tourist in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Anthony Dockrell. We often hear that Australia is the most successful multicultural country in the world. But turn on your TV at night and watch the news and you might be forgiven for thinking Australia was not a very diverse place at all. While all facets of our society have become more diverse, our media, like much of our politics, has been stubbornly holding back. Today we have a look at the latest new report titled Who Gets to Tell Australian Stories 2.0. To help us unpack the report, we're lucky to be joined by Sushi Daz, Chief of Staff at RMIT ABC Fact Check, and Dr Lee Martin, Senior Lecturer at the University of Sydney and co-author of the Media Diversity Australia report. Well, let's jump in. Lee, let me start with you. Do you think the media of today is closer to representing the Australia of today? No, unfortunately, and disappointingly, uh, no, it's it's no closer than when the first report came out in 2020. So, um, so this recent report um, just released, we had been hoping to see an improvement, but actually, while there are some pockets of improvement, the overall picture is really um, no more positive than two years ago, which is um, surprising in a way and uh, disappointing. Look, the, the Media Diversity Australia report has found some stark findings about the representation of cultural diversity of Australian TV mm-hmm. journalism. Uh, what did you find and how does it compare between broadca- uh, commercial networks and the public broadcaster? Well, the short answer to our finding was that, uh, of our findings was that um, yeah, basically what we're seeing in front of the cameras is not reflecting the makeup of Australian society more broadly. And also we looked at behind the cameras, so who is in the boardrooms and who are our editorial leaders, and they're also not reflective of the cultural composition of the Australian population. So the Australian population is more diverse than ever. So we've used the latest uh, census figures and found that it's even more diverse than when we did the first report, but that is not being reflected in front of or behind the camera. Um, and we also looked at, in our report, we looked at the perceptions of diversity and barriers for culturally diverse and Indigenous peoples in the media industry. And um, the perceptions are also not that great either um, in terms of um improvements on the first report um it's still there there's perceptions of greater barriers for indigenous um people and culturally diverse people people of culturally diverse backgrounds so we looked at perceptions of of audiences in terms of whether they think that um, cultural diversity and indigeneity could be better represented on australian tv screens in news and current affairs programs and we also looked at perceptions of newsroom staff and editorial leaders in terms of um, things like the career progression, barriers to career progression for culturally diverse staff and Indigenous staff. And these are all areas where um, there's a lot of room for improvement still. Sushi, I mean, from your position, have have you seen any improvements since the last time you were on Fourth Estate chatting about this very issue? Well, um <clears throat> So I can only go on what I see on TV and what I read in newspapers in terms of uh, looking at it as, from a consumer's point of view. 
It seems to me that the uh, I can see uh, different types of faces on um, the ABC News. Uh, SBS is always reliable for that kind of stuff, obviously. But um, there has been a change um, on the ABC, I think. Um, but it's not just about the kinds of reporters uh, who are in front of the camera. It's also about um, people who make decisions in the newsroom. It's also about people who are in leadership positions um, in those news organisations. So while, yes, I have seen um, a lot more uh, diversity in, in, you know, in front of the camera from the ABC, I don't know what the picture is higher up the ladder, if you see what I mean, because I think that's really where you want to start seeing some uh, concrete changes. Okay, well, look, before we dive deeper into some of those things you just touched on there, um, Lee, what have been some of the improvements that you've seen since the last report? Uh, some of the improvements have been in Indigenous representation in terms of the frequency of appearance on TV, uh, though not so much in terms of the number of presenters and report and reporters. So what I'm saying is basically that um, we are seeing more frequently um, Indigenous representation, but that is often due to just the addition of a single talent um, at a network. So they're doing a lot of the heavy lifting, really. Um, a lot of it is, is down to one person or a very small number of people rather than... Um, you know, taking on a lot more Indigenous presenters and reporters. So, but that it, that is nevertheless um, progress in terms of the number of appearances, at least. Um, we're seeing progress in terms of Indigenous appearances. Um, where else have we seen improvement? I mean, that is that is the main area, I would say, that's that's really stood out in this report compared to the first report. Look, one thing that did stand out as an improvement, I mean, and, and really it couldn't have got much worse, is the the boards do seem to be a bit more diverse than in 2019. Uh, did, is, it, is it fair to say that? There is, yeah, there is some progress in terms of the boards. Um, I would say in terms of cultural diversity, there's still a lots to be desired on some of the networks. Um, SBS was the only network that actually did have representation across all four cultural categories that we looked at. So Anglo-Celtic, European, non-European and Indigenous. Um, and the rest of the the rest of the boards, I mean the rest of the networks had boards which um, had some cultural diversity but still a number of the boards didn't have any uh, Indigenous representation on their boards or any non-European representation. Okay. Well, look, I think we've touched on some of the things that have improved uh, since the first report. But at the same time, it, it, as you've kind of foreshadowed, it's been a, a fairly disappointing result. And, uh, you know, Channel 7's board and its on-air talent has not moved at all since the last report. I mean, were you surprised that large sections of the media haven't moved at all? I was surprised in a way, but also not so surprised because I think that um, when you turn on the TV, you can still see how white it is. There's just, um, you can really see the lack of cultural diversity on TV. And so from that perspective, I wasn't surprised 
Um, though there has been some improvement, as Sushi pointed out, you know, on ABC, I do feel like when I turn on the TV that the ABC is showing more cultural diversity. So um, there are some areas of improvement. Um, So it was surprising in one way that um, there wasn't, there, there didn't appear to be more of an improvement based on the fact that the networks would have known that this second report was coming. So this has the same parameters as the first report. Um, They knew that we were doing this report card update. And from that perspective, I'm a bit surprised that it appears that more effort wasn't put into making sure that they sort of scored better on this report card compared to the first one. Look, the report includes a new focus on regional newsrooms. Lee, how are the regions looking? The regions are looking very Anglo-Celtic. <laughs> so, um, so yes, it's actually, I mean, in terms of diversity, they're, they're not diverse, not culturally diverse, um, and there's a lack of um, Indigenous representation in the regional newsrooms. Um, but what was interesting about this part of the report for this time, which was a new a new area that we looked at compared to the first report was that we did interviews with editorial leaders. So we could actually dig a bit deeper into, you know, what their perceptions are and their practices in hiring and and that sort of thing. And what was interesting was that there was in general an awareness of the importance of injecting more cultural diversity and indigeneity into their newsrooms so that they could present um, stories from these other perspectives um but and there was an awareness of you know that change is needed that action needs to be taken but in terms of um you know whether they felt that they could implement it themselves these editorial leaders that was a different question so even though they wanted to take some action uh they felt quite time constrained and um and they recognized that you know, this might lead them to lean on their own biases a bit too much in terms of trying to just choose the easy option and someone who, you know, looks similar to them, has similar background and experience to them, is someone that they think that they, you know, will fit in and easily learn the ropes. Um, and and that can be sometimes um, what guides their decision in terms of who who to hire. So I think it was interesting and encouraging that there was that level of awareness and, um, you know, a valuing of what cultural diversity can bring to their newsrooms, but also it's somewhat, yeah, disappointing that that there is such a lack of cultural diversity and Indigenous representation in regional newsrooms because that's what feeds into the metropolitan newsrooms. So really the pipeline... Um, you know, it's not looking good right from the start. Well, look, that's, a, I think, a really interesting point there about the pipeline. And the pipeline, yes, I mean, in the metro areas, quite often they are they are finding and sourcing their talent from the regions. But it's also probably fair to say that the regions are sourcing their talent from the universities. That's and, right. And what are we seeing at the university level? So this is not something that we... Um, especially looked at in the report, but this did come through a bit in terms of the interviews with the editorial leaders in the regional newsrooms. And they were saying that one challenge for them was 
was the lack of um, applicants from culturally diverse and Indigenous backgrounds applying for positions. And so that does partly come back to who is actually studying journalism in universities and is is that, um, you know, that's sort of the very start of the pipeline and, and, and that could be where it all, um, you know, where the problem stems from or at least partly stems from. So one of the suggestions that they had was to actually engage more with high school students so that people um, can see themselves in this career, um, see this as a viable option to study. And um, and also I think it's important to highlight role models as well. So even though there are not that many culturally diverse and Indigenous presenters and reporters, there are some, and it would be good to really highlight those um, so that people can really see themselves as, um, you know, that that this is a this is a career option for them because they see people like themselves succeeding in this industry. Well, Sushi, you're working at RMIT. Uh, do you see that there is an issue with the lack of diversity in in the student pool? Well, I think it's a bit of a mixed picture. Um, I know um, that RMIT uh, uh, has made big efforts. Um, to make sure that the journal, their journalism school takes on uh, students from all sorts of different uh, backgrounds. And, and and I think you're rightly, uh, a lot of students, um, it starts really early. You've got to get in there at the uh, high school level. Um, but I think there are quite a few barriers to entry. Um, I think that just talking about Asian families for a moment, I'm from uh, an Indian background, okay, um, and Indians and Chinese make up a, a fair amount of the Australian population. And I think that Asian students don't necessarily get uh, encouragement at home to get into journalism. Indian parents often focus on medicine, engineering, you know, as a career area for their kids. And Chinese parents don't always think of journalism as their first choice for their kids. So I think it really, if you want to go right back, we're, we're talking about that family environment where journalism is not the kind of uh, profession that's elevated in those communities, okay? But there are other barriers to entry. For example, I, I think being poor, for example, I mean, you know, people from migrant mm. backgrounds often face significant economic and social challenges um and and i'm not sure that journalism is where they're thinking well yeah i mean look you know we're, we're talking about how unfortunately our media is incredibly white but it's also incredibly middle class yeah that's right it is and and university is is um you know you've got to be able to afford to go to university um as well uh, before you can even think about what kind of career you're going into i mean i think on top of that you know, you have to, I would say that um, journalism is a bit of a closed um, sort of network. So unless, you know, if you do come from a, a poor background or if you do come from, say, an Asian background, if you don't already know people in the, uh, you know, journalism industry, it's just all that much harder to get in. I mean, when I first started in journalism, you know, 500 BC or whenever it was, um, there, there, were, there, were, there were no brown people that I could see in the newsroom at the age. I was there for 22 years. Um, I think there was one other brown journalist um, for most of the time that I was there. Um, it, and and it, how big I, was the newsroom? 
Oh, we're talking hundreds, yeah. hundreds of journalists, okay? Um, but I think so, and this, I think, does come a little bit down to lazy newsrooms. Um, how many newsrooms actually have got a program in place, a, a, a proper structure to try and get uh, diversity um, in their newsrooms? And, and I think, you know, until you start seeing... Uh, people in newsrooms making those kinds of decisions, you're not going to get any change, you know, because change doesn't just happen all by itself. Yeah, I think that these are really great points that you raised about, um, well, I think the thing about networks and um, and also, you know, generally being middle class um these are the people that you see in working in newsrooms um, with the university education. This is actually something else which came through that the editorial leaders in the regional newsrooms that we interviewed picked up on. And they said that, um, you know, one of the ways that we could try to get more cultural diversity and indigeneity into the uh, newsroom in, in regional newsrooms would be to actually have targeted um, cadetships or traineeships where, you know, it doesn't rely on having a university degree to get in. Um, so I think that that definitely that's recognised as an issue that's contributing to this problem, this um, sort of quite homogenous workforce that we have entering um, into regional newsrooms. Um, and also the networks, that's also an interesting point because one of the things that, um, one of the comments that came up during the interviews was that um, uh, that sometimes people from culturally diverse backgrounds, um, I guess those who perhaps haven't been educated in Australia, may not put together an application in the same way as someone from an Australian background would uh, Australian educated um, background would. And so one of the newsroom editorial leaders said, you know, that for people in their network, they would actually sit down and help them to craft an application that, you know, has a greater chance of success. And so it's really important to have those networks. And that is something that could be um, lacking for people from certain cultural backgrounds or Indigenous backgrounds. And so something that is really important to try to um, cultivate, I think, is that network for before they come in, but also when they join to have an industry-wide network of, of people from culturally diverse backgrounds and Indigenous backgrounds so that they have that support system and more likely to succeed and feel included and feel like they belong in the industry. So I do think that those are, yeah, great points that you've raised, Sushi. And also in terms of the um, cultural factors like like uh, parents not particularly wanting to push their kids into these into this industry as a career because of uh, cultural factors perhaps and I think that is that is true um, that is something that I've heard anecdotally and I've also conducted research with um, with Chinese Australian multicultural individuals about their career choices and this is also something which has come through in that research. Uh, which is separate to this report. But um, but also I think that the more they see people like them on screen, um, the more those attitudes and perceptions can start to change and this this can become a possible career option for um, 
for people of different backgrounds, although there will always be that cultural factor. But, you know, people people are changing, the generations are changing in terms of how much they accept their parents' influence over these sorts of matters. So even though there's, I think, always going to be that that element of um, different cultures valuing different types of occupations and perhaps media industry not falling into, into one of those categories. But um, I think that there are cultural shifts too. So, yeah, I think there's still hope. <laughs> Let's turn to trust. Lee, the report found that a higher proportion of respondents with a non-European background had stopped using news sources because they thought it was biased. Did you find out why? Well, this is the first step of um, exploring this this aspect, I suppose, about trust and and how people from different cultural backgrounds trust the media. So, no, we didn't delve into why exactly. We just we asked this survey question, and I guess this would be a very really interesting thing to explore further in in future research. Sushi, do you think it's a, a lack of representation? Why there's so such a high level of distrust? Uh, quite possibly. I think that, um, you know, if a country is increasingly ethnically diverse and news organisations don't reflect this in their coverage or the people they hire, then they will inevitably lose audience share. And that's the fastest way to irrelevance and death, if you ask me. Um, I I often don't understand why newsrooms are so slow to uh, take on uh, people from uh, diverse communities because, I mean, that's the truth, isn't it? If you can't see yourself on TV or in, or hear yourself on the radio or people like you, then why would you listen? Um, don't you want to be made to feel that you're a valued member of that society? I think journalists need a deep knowledge of the nation's communities and constituents, and particularly during election campaigns as well. Um, And I think it's really important that we build these ethnically diverse newsrooms, not, not, you know, we can't just dismiss it as tokenism or political correctness. It's about good journalism as well. And and the point that I really want to make is that um, diverse newsrooms, I think, um, help to ensure that the final news product will tell the widest possible range of stories that best meet um, the audience's needs. Um, And when you do that, you build trust. Um, Diversity of viewpoints um, is extremely important. We're in this age of really profound political polarisation, right? And publishing stories that reflect this wide range of beliefs experiences, viewpoints, and all the rest of it, I, mean, I think that that could help expand uh, reader trust. Um, and I think also that a homogeneity in viewpoints produces a sort of uncritical consensus. And in this environment, journalists who have little or no diversity in their newsrooms collectively become sort of blind to evidence that might counter their own Uh, preconceptions. So you end up sort of looking through this lens of vanilla journalism if if you don't have diversity. And having a diverse newsroom, I would argue, it's good for journalists, Um, from diverse backgrounds because they can bring their insights to journalism. It's good for news organisations to protect and expand their audience share and build trust. 
It's good for the public who we serve because we can give them a fresh perspective. And it's good for journalists from European backgrounds because it educates them to be in an environment where ethnically diverse journalists work so we can all learn from each other. I mean, I can only see good things from having um, diverse newsrooms. And so I don't understand why newsrooms are so slow to get onto this. Let's turn the clock back a little bit. Nineteen In the 1970s, the Fraser government introduced SBS. It also helped drive community radio, which is a major part of uh, the diversity in Australian media for over 40 years. However, I wonder if how you both think about the idea that we're both we're all still trapped in this 1970s ethnic model of diversity, one that caters for a diverse Australia, but it partitions it away, uh, and the major mainstream players don't need to worry about it. Lee, do you see structural issues here, um, like the fact that we, in some respects, uh, Australia was very much at the forefront of multiculturalism and 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 did these amazing initiatives, but maybe they have also trapped us in this kind of silo model of how we view the media. Yeah, I think I think that's a very perceptive comment and I think it's actually very telling how some of the networks reacted to our report, which sort of does reflect this siloed view. Um, you know, SBS came out and said, why did you not count um, SBS Arabic and SBS Mandarin in your report? Um, and it's almost as if they feel like they've covered they've covered the cultural diversity bit there and don't need to worry about it as much in in the main SBS programs. Um, and they're not the mainstream programs. Those th- These um, other programs that they talk about in terms of, um, you know, being in other languages. So same with um, indigeneity. So SBS actually scored qu- quite low on indigeneity, Indigenous representation, Um but they have NITV, which is part of SBS. But if you look at SBS itself, um, Indigenous representation on SBS is actually very low in terms of who we see on our screens. So I do think that it, it seems like um, it seems like there's there's not so much an, an effort to increase cultural diversity and Indigenous representation across the board but it's more like, you know, we can do well here and that can make up for our lack of progress in this area instead. And I think a lot of the responses to our report from the TV networks had that sort of flavour to it. Sort of like, why didn't you look over here? Because we're doing better over here. But actually, you know, you need to be doing better across the board. It is kind of weird that they do not understand that they're not reflecting Australia back to Australians. Yeah, it's it's just the responses were quite bizarre to me because I don't think that anyone who watches Australian TV could argue that there uh, that there isn't a lack of cultural diversity because it's just it's very obvious to me um and I think it's it should be obvious to anyone who who watches Australian TV so news and current affairs programs I'm talking about although the problem is also broader than that but our report looked at news and current affairs Okay, well, look, I guess we've we've come to a point where these problems are very deep-seated and we're not improving and not improving fast enough. There are some approaches we can do. I, I might mention that awful word quotas soon, but I want to touch on the UK. The UK does provide a way forward for Australia. Lee, what are they doing better? 
Well, the UK actually tracks its cultural diversity, um, not just cultural diversity, but other diversity aspects. So they actually have um, a communications regulator of COM, which has been collecting data of uh, the cultural background of people employed in TV for the past five years um, and also in radio for the past four years. And so they're able to compare um, in terms of, you know, their journalists and their on-screen talent, what proportions do they have who are in minority ethnic groups versus white ethnic groups. And so that's that's really useful to have this industry-wide data collection and that's something that we we don't have in in Australia. So apart from this report card that we've produced, um, there's there's no other industry-wide effort to do a similar sort of um, auditing of the cultural diversity and indigeneity. And, and you know, another thing um, to point out is that, you know, some of the networks came out and said, well, um, we do have diversity with, you know, within other ranks of our organisation. So, so, we have looked at the senior leaders of um, newsrooms and we looked at who's in front of the screen, but they're saying, well, behind the scenes at other levels, we have good cultural diversity. And in that case, you know, if they're collecting that data and then, um, you know, release it, let us know what, what is going on in, in various levels of the organisation. Um, so we don't know, you know, we, we just we really don't have much of an idea of um, the cultural composition within media organisations because that data is not made publicly available in Australia. So I think that the fact that the UK have actually, you know, this work is being done by the communications regulator, that shows a real government commitment to um, to holding, you know, to holding um, media organisations accountable for for the diversity that they have within them. Sushi, do you see something happening in the UK but isn't happening here? Look, I, I don't know um, uh, the answer to that question, but I do know that, um, you know, m- migrants uh, in Britain have been there since the, you know, 1950s and 60s. We're looking at um, people in the second generation, third generation, um, and a lot of confidence among those communities as well uh, to push for change. Um, Whether that's happening here, I really can't say. I mean, I can only talk about my own personal experience, and that is when I came here first um, back in early 90s, um, I really felt there weren't many people my (laughs) colour around, certainly not in newsrooms anyway. Um, And it really was... It wasn't easy, you know, um, trying to get into this space. So I uh, I understand how difficult it is for people um, if they want to get into journalism and they're not um, the uniform, you know, white sort of background. I think things have changed in Australia, but it, it, they're just really slow. That that's the problem. It's just the slow the the pace of change is really slow, and I don't understand why that is, but. I mean, I remain optimistic. You know, I consider myself very lucky. I've held some, um, you know, senior positions um, at at the age and now at, um, you know, RMIT Fact Lab and RMIT ABC Fact Check as well. And I hope that, um, you know, on on a real world level, there are young journalists from diverse backgrounds who, who can see that 
you know, th there are some role models here now um, uh, that they can, um, you know, and we we stand ready uh, to support them um, and help them get ahead. How it's, you know, why it's happened in the UK uh, faster than it's happened here, I can't really say, but I think the UK gives us um, a, a really good um you know, uh, example of what it can look like if we, if we can just all get on with it. Um, but but it does require a commitment. It really does, and and it does require us to see people from diverse communities as equal to us um, in in their talents and the skills um, that they bring. And that you know, I mean, just to give you give you an example, when when I first started. At the age, I remember going to um, a, a press conference where I was greeted by an MP. Um, the only other brown uh, journalist on our paper at the time was a um, wonderful woman called Farah Farouk. And I remember, <laughs> I remember arriving at this press conference and the MP put his hand out and he said, ah, oh, hello, Farah. And I said, mm. no, I'm Sushi Das. Farah is the other brown one. And I really, I was angry in that moment. Um, but sometimes I, you know, I think about that incident because it stays with me. And I just feel, you just get this feeling that sometimes people just put all brown people, to put all brown people into the same bracket um, and sort of can't see that we're individuals who bring our own experiences and different skills um, uh, to the job. And I think that's what we really need to break down and just see that people come in all sorts of shapes and forms and we've all got something to contribute if you only just um, would, you know, if only the door was left slightly ajar for them to get through. Okay, well, let's end by discussing what Australian media companies need to start doing. What do they need to do, Lee? What can they start doing? Well, I think that a good step would, first step would be to, uh, read the report that we have produced and uh, read it with an open mind and with a view to seeing where where they can make improvements in their own organisation. And it's really important that it's the leaders of these organisations that um, take our recommendations to heart and really um, start valuing cultural diversity, um, just as Sushi has said. And I'm not saying that... Um, that they don't at the moment, but I think that the the initial responses to our report has been a bit disappointing, and hopefully is not indicative of how they, you know, how how they react when concerns are brought up, say by their own staff members about cultural diversity. So we've, you know, we've pointed out areas that um, that need improvement, and we've pointed out, you know, steps that can be taken to. Um, to try to combat um, th those those issues, and um, and we hope that they can really um, be a bit introspective and um, and try to take some genuine actions on that. And so we've um, you know we've laid out various strategies in in the report on what they could do, but I think that an important point is that it needs to be about diversity, equity and inclusion. So all of these things go together and it's not just about increasing the diversity, which is important and um, and that's about, you know, trying to reach out to, you know, um, advertise jobs in 
in places where culturally diverse and Indigenous readers would actually see those job application, um, job advertisements and want to apply. So things like that is actually trying to improve the diversity in applicants, but also it's about making sure that um, that they see these organisations as inclusive places to work, that they feel included once they join. Uh, so it's about the culture of the organisation, which really comes from the top, and also about equity. So can they actually progress their careers? Can they rise up to those leadership positions? And the you know, the findings from our report is that, you know, the perception is that that's not, that's not there. That's not the case at the moment. So, so yeah, so leaders really just have to be careful about what, what messages they're sending out by their actions, including things like, you know, their response to this report. What message are they sending to their staff and to people who are looking to join their organisation? people from culturally diverse backgrounds and Indigenous backgrounds by how, you know, by the response they're taking to, to this report and are they looking towards the future and, and what they can do better or are they trying to instead trying to, to justify why they've already done a lot um, and, you know, try to deflect attention from, from those areas of concern and just try to say what they've been doing that is um, good enough already, you know. I just want to say, if there are any newsroom uh, leaders out there uh, who want to have a diverse newsroom but somehow don't know what to do or how to do it, I reckon there are four things, four things that they can do. One, announce that you've made a commitment to having a diverse newsroom. Two, set up some realistic quotas. Three, set out a timeline for when you wish to achieve this by. And then lastly, say how you're going to measure your improvement. Those four things are the first four things I think any newsroom leader needs to do if they want to change um, how things are at the moment. Look, on that note, I'd like to thank you both for being on Fourth Estate. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the chance to discuss these issues. I think it's really important that um, we keep the conversations going on this. So thank you for the chance to talk about our report findings. And Sushi, thank you so much for your insights, which I found really interesting too. Uh, Thank you both. On that note, I'd like to thank Sushi Daz and Dr. Lee Martin for being on Forfa State. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of TuruCR and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Forfa State is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Forfa State on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is ForfaStateAU. Thanks to my producer, Marlene Even. I'm Anthony Dockrell. Thanks for listening. Listener.